0: Uh, Without further ado, last Sunday we started to examine Jesus' conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a ruling member of the Sanhedrin who became somewhat superficially attached to Jesus uh, after witnessing the signs, the wonders, the miracles he was performing during a Passover celebration. So this guy was watching Jesus do these things and he became interested in Jesus and kind of believed in Jesus in a sense, but not really. But he liked the miracles, he liked the power, and he was kind of superficially attached. And he basically you know, goes to Jesus and, and starts to have a conversation with Jesus, and he wants to talk about the miracles and the power and those things, but Jesus had other plans for their encounter, uh, knowing where Nicodemus was headed, because Jesus is omniscient, he knows what's in our hearts, he knew Nicodemus was there to talk about certain things, and he knew what was going on there and where that whole encounter was headed. Jesus switches it up on him and, and takes control of the conversation. Nicodemus began the conversation, and Jesus takes over and introduces the subject of uh, biblical salvation and doesn't just introduce it. He unpacks it. Not all of it. There are certain things that aren't part of this particular conversation, election, predestination, other things that are facets, but they're not here. But there are some pretty important truths here that he begins to unpack and unfold. And you would think that as a Pharisee, which was an elite class of religious leaders in those days, and as a ruler and as a teacher of Israel, you would think that someone like Nicodemus would be an expert on this subject. He was certainly called to be an expert, right? A pastor should be an expert in biblical salvation, right? You know, if you go to a pastor, you're expecting to hear the truth. And uh, so you would think that this guy in his role and at his level and position, really the pinnacle of Judaism, you would think that he just had it all down. But as the conversation unfolds, we discover that, that he was ignorant, that uh, he did not know God's way of salvation. He, he knew the Bible but he didn't know God's way of salvation. He didn't know the Messiah. He didn't even know he was talking to the Messiah. And uh, he just was stubborn as well, not just ignorant, just, not just lacking in knowledge, because that's really the definition of ignorance, but he was also stubborn. When Jesus, the divine expert on the subject, declared the starting point of salvation and of sinner's life, which is being born again, regenerated, Nicodemus didn't respond as an inquisitive, curious child. He responded sarcastically. You mean to tell me I have to go back into my mother's womb? And, right? You know, so it's sarcasm is how he responds. When, when Jesus takes it to another level and, and, and bears down on that subject, and then he begins to describe regeneration as a work of the Holy Spirit, you know, it's. It's a work of the the washing of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. When he breaks that down and talks about how it's not something that we do, it's a work of the Holy Spirit, it's all God, Nicodemus, again, doesn't respond like an inquisitive, curious child. He becomes dismissive. How can it be? Tell me it isn't so. In verses 11 and 12, back in the last section, Jesus basically said, here's your problem, Nicodemus. You do not receive our testimony, you do not believe. Unbelief, for Nicodemus, the, the issue that he had was, was unbelief. Unbelief is what caused the ignorance. An unwillingness to, to yield to the truth and to not embrace the truth and to not uh, believe the truth is what perpetuates ignorance. We start out ignorantly, but when we deny the truth, we become more and more ignorant. And that was His problem. It was kind of a unbelief-induced ignorance. That was last week. In the next section, Jesus continues to unpack biblical salvation, and He introduces the next component. First was being born again, or regeneration, the new birth. And, and now he introduces the next component, which is belief, which is faith. This will be a four-point sermon with four Ps. And I think it's befitting that we pray before we begin to look at each of them. Lord, we just humble ourselves now. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any hardened hearts in this place that you would just transform them including my own even as a believer I tend to harden my heart against certain truths but I just pray Lord that your Holy Spirit that you'd sent him and in, in such power that he works a supernatural work in our hearts maybe for the first time that we become born again maybe it's not the first time for some of us but we just need to hear from you and we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to take these truths and apply them there are going to be believers in this room that have heard differently about this passage. We're looking at, Jesus, we're looking at the, the, the most popular Bible passage of all time. John 3.16, we're looking at that today. And I think we'll find that it means something a little bit different than what we've been told. I think in many ways we've been sold a bad bag of goods on, on what's actually playing out here. And so help us through the Holy Spirit to understand, and not just to understand, but to comply, to obey, and and to live it out. So we give you our time and attention now. We yield ourselves to you. Speak to us, Lord. And I pray that these people here would hear directly from Jesus, not from Phil. we pray these things in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to look at number one, the first P. It is the parallel. The parallel in verses 14 and 15. Jesus is continuing to teach Nicodemus, and He says here, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus calls Nicodemus' attention to a, a memorable event recorded in Numbers chapter 21, and then he parallels that event to himself. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have known this story. I'm pretty sure he would have known it pretty well, probably had it memorized. These guys memorized all Scripture. They memorized the whole Torah. I don't know how you do that. I can barely remember a verse. But he would have known this story, and when Jesus made this statement in verse 14 and 15, Nicodemus would have known what he's talking about. When Moses was leading the Israelites around Edom toward the Promised Land, the people grew impatient, and they did this very typically. They were on a long, long journey toward the Promised Land. It took a lot longer than you would think, like 40 years or so. And it wasn't because of the distance, but it was because of the work that God was doing among His people. They were very rebellious, and He was shaping and molding His people and getting them into the form of a nation, an obedient nation. And So they grew impatient. They hated the food. They hated the supplies that God had brought to them. They didn't like the leadership that God appointed with Moses. And quite frankly, as a parent... The father got, he didn't lose his patience or anything like that. He did exactly what a good parent does. He disciplined him. And he, he does this because, you know, he chastens them is what he does. And This is what we do as a good parent. But he does this as a parent and, and, and he does it. It sounds really harsh what he does, but he takes it to this level of, of introducing poisonous snakes into the camp. That just right there, I just, when I read that, I was like, what? Boy, I, I guess I should probably seek to obey and do the right thing. If I come home and there's a bunch of rattlesnakes in the house, I know something's wrong. But he literally brings all of these, they're called fiery serpents in the text, but they're poisonous snakes into the camp. And, and of course, they're biting people left and right. And people are dropping like flies and dying left and right. It says in the text, many died. So they rebelled against God. God chastens and disciplines them by bringing in fiery serpents, poisonous snakes. And of course, with all these people dying and everything, where's Jim? Well, he's no longer with us. He was all ticked off about the pheasant or whatever quail we were eating, and he got bit by a snake. He's no longer with us. So the people started to realize people are dying. It could be that maybe we've caused this because we've all been chattering and moaning and groaning and whining and railing and you know, complaining against our God who has been gracious and brought us out of slavery, and we don't like this, we want to go back to Egypt. Maybe it's because of what we've been doing that this has happened. And they go to Moses, and they confess their sin, and they're complaining and all of that. And they ask Moses to pray for them. You know, pray that pray that God takes the snakes away. Pray that God lifts his his hand of discipline from us. And Moses does that. And and God was merciful. God responded mercifully, and, and that tells us something about his character. He he will relent in his discipline and anger toward us if we confess and repent and come to him. And they did that. And God instructs Moses. Uh, to create a bronze image of a serpent or snake and attach it to a pole and then stand it up in the camp. So you can imagine you've got probably over a million people, I think, and you've got this staff going up into the air with this bronze sculpture of a serpent, of a snake, probably a representation of what's loose in the camp, lighting everyone up. And... If someone had been bitten by one of these snakes, I I don't know how much time they had, I don't know the venom level, but if they had been bitten by one of the serpents, one of the snakes, they could look at the, the bronze image and they would be healed physically. So that's the story that Jesus is pointing to here. Now, if you were in the camp and you had been bitten and you refused to look at the bronze serpent, you would die from the venom. So this thing's put up and people are being bitten and they're getting sick and and they know the instructions and I'm sure some of them were looking at it. Some were going, I'm not going to look at that. you know. And people are still dying, but people are also being restored physically. Here's the parallel that Jesus is drawing. Just as Moses lifted up this serpent on the pole so that all who looked upon it might live physically. Those who look to the Son of Man, Jesus, who was lifted up on the cross, will live spiritually and eternally. That's the parallel. So the snake on the pole was none other than a foreshadow of the Son of Man on the cross. Okay, And I believe this is the first time in John's gospel that Jesus tells anyone about his death. He's already starting to lay out the gospel. And the first person, according to this gospel, that he's actually talking to about it is Nicodemus, an unbeliever. So there's the parallel. You've got Moses and you've got the serpent thing on a pole and you've got Jesus on a pole, on a cross. Back then, if you looked on the serpent, you lived physically. If we look upon Jesus, the person and work of Jesus who died on a cross, we will live. And it has to do with belief, not just, you know, I stared at it, am I good? So there's the parallel that he draws. So first he was talking to Nicodemus about being born again. Now he introduces the subject of faith and he parallels it with an Old Testament story. And looking upon the cross and Jesus has to do with believing. Now let's analyze some of the words and phrases here. Son of man. This was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He used it more than any other title for himself. And when he says son of man, he is referring to his incarnation and humanity. So whenever you see the title son of man in the Gospels or in the New Testament, Think of Jesus as a man. Think of him as a human being, a full man. Because he is, right? God and man. So son of man. So we get the idea here. This is is Jesus' incarnation. If somebody looks upon this person who is a man named Jesus, the incarnate God, as a man, that person will have eternal life. Whoever, the word whoever, Now, you must understand why Jesus says whoever here, because it's whoever believes, right? It's whoever looks upon the Son of Man. Whoever, as a pious Jew and member of the elite Pharisees, Nicodemus would have believed that salvation was for Israel only. Absolutely. In fact, many Jews today, Orthodox Jews, still feel that way. They have that theology. They believe they're, they, they alone are God's people, and they, they are God's only people, and only they can be saved. And, and Gentiles like us, we're, non, we're non-Jewish, so we're called Gentiles. We're nothing more than dogs and, and what have you. We're unclean. God would never even consider saving people outside of Israel. That's the mentality that's going on probably in the mindset of Nicodemus, because he is a Pharisee. That's what they believed. But Jesus doesn't say, so Israel can look upon him and believe and live, have eternal life. He says, whoever. Whoever can mean outside of Israel. It can mean Jew. It can mean Gentile. You think of... Uh, what Paul says in one of his epistles where there's neither male nor female nor, nor uh, uh, barbarian nor, nor uh, Jew nor Gentile in the church. The church is comprised of all sorts of tribes and tongues. And so what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is whoever, in other words, not just Pharisees, not just Jews, And and I'll tell you what, John, the author of this gospel, takes it to a whole other level here. He really does. He really kind of bangs away at this idea of salvation being beyond Israel alone. He gives an incredible example of a whoever in chapter 4, the woman at the well. You see, all this stuff is written strategically by the Holy Spirit. When God makes something, when He declares something, He usually backs it with an illustration, so we can it'll click and we get it. So, chapter four, almost the entire chapter deals with a non-Jew getting saved, a whoever. Who was the woman at the well? She was an outsider. She was a non-Jew. She was a Gentile. She was a a Samaritan from Sychar. This, this this particular woman would have been in Nicodemus' mind, if he'd ever heard the story, would have been the least likely person of all time to ever get saved. First of all, woman. And the Jewish men didn't think too highly of women back then. Secondly, Samaritan, they're heathen. Third, she's not Jewish. There's no way that, in fact, when Jesus, when we look at chapter four, when Jesus is conversing with this woman, even the disciples are with him, like thinking, what's he doing? And then we find out that she's a major adulteress and has had a ton of husbands and, and all these things. And you would just think that there's no way that somebody like this, at least in the Jewish mind, could ever be saved because their life is a disaster. Well, I read the gospel and I find out that God came to die for disasters. And some people just don't understand that. Uh, it just John just drives this home with the, with the woman at the well narrative that whoever believes shall inherit eternal life. And that's Jew, non-Jew, whoever. It's a term that refers to, it, to it, it means universality, not in the application of salvation, but in its scope, in that it is applied to every tribe and tongue. We know it can't be universal in its application because not everyone gets saved. But it has to do with scope. It has to do with beyond Israel. And this is, let me tell you, I think he's saying this right here. I'm encouraged by it, but I think he's doing it just to hit at Nicodemus's theology. So Nicodemus can actually see the way things really work. So, son of man, first, second, whoever, outside of Israel. Then you've got the word believes. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What What? What is faith? What comes to mind? In your mind, you don't have to answer the question, but when we think of faith, when we think of believing, we just think of believing in Jesus. But I'm here to tell you today that biblical faith is a lot broader than just merely believing in Jesus. We've reduced it to that, but it's bigger than that. It consists of at least three components. I'm talking about biblical faith, what it means to believe. There's, There's at least three components to it. The first component is knowledge. The knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Just think about that right now. How on earth can you believe in someone you don't know? You can't believe in someone you don't know. Not in this way. And so faith, when we see the word faith it appear in Scripture, it has to do with knowing the object of our faith. Doesn't mean you're an expert, doesn't mean you're a scholar, doesn't mean you have more degrees than Fahrenheit, you're R.C. Sproul. It can, but you, you have, a, at bare minimum, at the beginning, a basic knowledge of who Jesus is and what He's accomplished. I think that's the starting point. The second component is conviction. What does that mean, just hatred of sin and all that? Well, certainly it does, but I, I, I think it's bigger than that. I think conviction, what it really means in the sense of faith is that you agree with who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You don't just know who he is and what he's done. You agree. That's what he did. I believe he did that. I agree. So you've got knowledge, you've got conviction. And the third is the one that we most commonly think of, and that's trust. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. And what is trust? Trust is assent. Trust is, as simple as I can put it, confidence in who Jesus is and in what he's done for you. So when we see the word faith in the Bible, think of, I know who he is, I believe who he is, and I'm trusting in who he is. That's true faith. It consists of knowledge, conviction, and trust. And when Jesus says, Whoever believes, that's what he's saying, knows me, believes me, trusts me. It's not just about belief. It's not just about trust. It's not not any one of those things singled out, it's all of them working harmoniously together. As I said, how can you trust or believe someone you don't know? So they have to be there and they will be represented. I would say it like this, a true believer possesses all three, a faith that includes all three, and he or she will grow in each of those areas, in their knowledge, in their conviction, in their trust, as they participate in the ordinary means of grace, of prayer. These are the graces of God to us, like prayer and preaching, the sacraments, communion and baptism, those things, as we participate in those things. We grow in those three areas. That's what it means to have your faith grown, to grow your faith. It means you're growing in knowledge, conviction, and trust. Not just belief, it's all three. This is huge because I don't think people in the church understand this today. They just think, well, I just believe in Jesus, I'm good. Do you trust him? I don't know. You don't have true saving faith if you don't. If something's missing, something's wrong and deficient with your faith. The Bible defines things for us. It doesn't just say this or that. It actually lays things out for us. So you've got Son of Man, you've got whoever, you've got believes, and we know that belief and faith have to do with knowledge, conviction, and trust. Just throw it out there to you. You don't have to answer. But is that, have I described your, your faith, your belief? You got the knowledge, you got the conviction, you got the trust? That's a good sign if you do. If you don't, not a good sign. Next phrase, eternal life. This is what the born-again person of faith, believer, receives from God. This is the probably one of the greatest of all His gifts of grace, the eternal life that we get. We see it right here in this text. You must understand that eternal life is not merely about a progression of years or living forever. That's typically what we reduce it down to. I have eternal life. It means I'm going to live Forever. If, if you've reduced it to that, then you don't understand that, that people that do not have what it says here, eternal life, all souls live forever. Everyone is eternal. You have two destinations that you spend that eternity in. So we can't just say that it has to do with a progression of years and I'm going to live forever because everyone lives forever. Every soul lives forever. It's not that. Eternal life's way bigger and better than that. Way bigger than that. Jesus uh, drop the hammer on this in definition in John 17 3. I love the fact that every time we go cite another text it's in John which means we're going to get to all this stuff in 14 years. This is how Jesus defines eternal life. He said and this is eternal life. Then he describes it. That they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, So it has to do with knowing God. It has to do with knowing God the Son, Jesus Christ, right? God the Father, knowing God the Father, knowing God the Son, knowing the Godhead. That's what eternal life is. And what's phenomenal about this little text in 17.3 is what the word know is actually tied to. It, it's, it ties to and it's referencing Genesis 4.1 where it describes how... Adam knew his wife and how she conceived and gave a child afterwards. So in that particular context, it has to do with the intimacy that a husband and wife share and then procreation, the, the outcrop of that, having a child. There's no sexual connotation in, in, in this here for us, but the idea is the intimacy of how a husband and wife know each other. We will know God. Eternal life has to do with knowing God, but not just knowing a few things about Him, knowing Him relationally in a deep, deep way. And, and the illusion the or illustration that's given is how a husband knows a wife. Have you ever thought about why the church is called the bride over and over and why Jesus is called the bridegroom? That's the level of depth that our relationship with God has. In fact, it just transcends that. It goes beyond a human relationship. That's what it means, friends, to have eternal life, to know God intimately in a deep way likened to a marriage. And there could be some that say, well, I really don't like that because I didn't have such a great marriage. Well, that's a problem that we have on this side of glory. Believe me, that problem does not exist with your true husband. Nobody, nobody will love you like Jesus. And the guys were thinking, I'm going to have a husband that's awkward. Don't think of it like that, guys. It's just a metaphor. It means depth. It means intimacy. It means mercy. It means real grace. It means real forgiveness. It's just the perfect, awesome relationship. And I'll say this as a bonus. It doesn't pick up and start when we breathe our last breath. It starts the moment we first believe. Immediately, you have this relationship with God the Father, and that relationship is a growing relationship, and it's intimate, right? This is one of the things that sets Christianity apart. In Islam, I don't mean to attack it, but in Islam, there's no relationship to Allah. There's nothing but pleading for mercy. You can't know him as a father like this. No other religion has this component. This is about relationship with God. Eternal life is knowing Him and knowing Him intimately forever and ever and ever. And I think it's increasing. I think Paul said in one of our elder meetings at one time that salvation uh, salvation is is, is when a person first believes or whatever, it's just the beginning of knowing God. There's a whole eternity to grow in relationship with Him and to come to know Him in a deeper way. And He is infinite, so can you imagine? Imagine. There's no end to the learning. So that is eternal life. It is knowing God the Father, knowing Jesus Christ, knowing the Godhead in a similar way to that of a loving married couple. But it has no sexual connotation. That's just in the Genesis section. There's nothing like that. I'll give you my definition of eternal life. That might be worth nothing, a hill of beans, but here's how I define it. Eternal life, because we think of progression of years, and I'm going to live forever. Everyone does, Jimmy, back off. Here's what I call it. It is a mercy-based, grace-centered, love-saturated, joy-filled, perpetual relationship with the Godhead. That's it. That's eternal life. Everything and anything you've ever wanted in a relationship is found in the relationship with the Godhead. Perfect love, perfect forgiveness, perfect patience, everything is there. And I'll tell you, when you get saved, you begin to experience that and that rubs off on you and you can begin to engage in better relationships on this side of glory with people, right? Right? We don't have to love people selfishly, or it's all based on me, and if I make her happy, she makes me happy, and then we're all happy, because if mama ain't happy, they forgot the line, if daddy ain't happy, because it sucks too if he's not happy. <laughs> oh, if the woman's upset, it's terrible, right? Well, it's not good if the men are torqued. I know. <laughs> what, what's missing in your relationship is never missing in the eternal life relationship. It's perfect. Now, it's hard for us to comprehend and experience that down here because we've got the flesh and we've got struggle and all that. Well, there will come a day where it's perfected for us. We get it completely. It's like we're looking into a a mirror that's dimly lit right now. We kind of, okay, I can see the shadow. I get it. That looks really awesome. But when we go to be with Jesus, perfect sight. So those are some of the phrases and definitions of what Jesus is unpacking here. All right, there's the parallel, the snake on a pole, Christ on the cross, and then we've broken down some of the important words and phrases there. Second, the provision, this is the second P, the provision, verse 16, this is the the verse that's held up at football games, I don't know how much longer you'll see that because that's offensive, right? Right? but this is the one that people hold up. I remember Tebow years ago, he'd put that black stuff under his eyes to keep the reflection out of his face, and he'd put John 3.16 right here. You see it everywhere. Well, it has to do with the provision. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. According to verse 14, however, God's provision for salvation is the Son of Man, right? He's on the cross, the parallel to the serpent on the pole. But according to verse 16, it is the only Son of God. So the question I have is, which one is it? Is it the Son of Man? The, is God's provision or the Son of God? It is both. You've got, in verse 14 in verse 16, you've got the full person of Jesus Christ represented. He is the Son of Man. He is... The Son of God. What does the Son of God represent? Son of Man represents His humanity, His incarnation. Son of God represents what? His godness, His deity. God's provision for salvation is the God-man. Who is the God-man? Jesus Christ is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. He's the only God-man. Jesus basically told Nicodemus that a person must believe in the totality of who he is. A person must receive him and have the knowledge of him and put their trust in him as the God-man. Not just as God, not just as man, as the God-man. God gave the God-man for our salvation. God actually stepped out of glory and became a man. This is what he's telling Nicodemus. Those who believe in the totality of who Jesus is, and remember belief is knowledge, conviction, trust, they will receive eternal life, knowing God intimately forever and ever and ever and ever. Is it clicking? You get it? He reiterated the scope to Nicodemus in the words world and whoever. Right here. For God so loved the world that whoever, there's a reiteration here of the scope. God's provision for salvation is is not just for Israel, again, like Nicodemus believed. It is for the world. It is for whoever. And the way that we should look at that is that it means beyond Israel. It's in Israel. It's outside of Israel. It's all over the world. It's global. Now, we must ask the question, what motivates God or what motivated God? And I'm not sure if God can even be motivated by anything. He's absolutely perfect. We have to be motivated, but I'll just say it for the sake of understanding. What motivated God to do this for the world? Just think about the world right now. Is it a picturesque, perfect place where there's harmony, peace, and love? It's a disaster. Why? Because of us. We jacked it up, man. We're not only destroying the world in terms of resource and everything else, we're destroying one another in warfare and violence and divorce, everything. All of the stuff that's going on. I mean, think about it. When you think about the world, do you think the world, when you think of the world, do you think of a place or a planet that's actually worthy of something from God other than wrath? I don't. We, we have... Because of Adam and Eve and because of their progeny, all of us, we have turned it into a disaster. We have raped, we have pillaged, we have murdered, we have maligned the image of God, our perfect God. It's not good what we've done. And I often tell people, you should be lucky that I'm not God. I just wipe you out. And then they say, but you'd have to wipe yourself out. I said, never mind. That's not a good point. You're not supposed to answer. It was rhetorical. I hate it when people keep bringing stuff back on me. (laughs) What would motivate the God who created all of it to provide the God-man for salvation to, to a people who hate him and who despise him and who rebel against him at every point? It says in the scripture, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have, as Sproul often says, we have committed cosmic treason at the highest level. What would motivate him? Love. For God so loved. That's not the kind of love that comes to mind with me. I just, that doesn't compute. Because my love is usually two-sided. If somebody loves me, I love them back and all that, right? It's pretty selfish and self-motivated. Well, that can't be how this love is because these people are not offering him anything in return. Or... This is agape, a love. This is sacrificial love. This is, this is the deepest, most profound, most pure form of love there is. What motivated him to do it? Love. God provided the God man, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for our sins because he loves sinners throughout the world. He loves people who have rebelled against him, who hate him. He loves these people, me included. I can't believe it, can't get my mind around that. He loves people from every tribe, every tongue, every generation because of the whoever in the world, right? It's not just Israel. It's not just Jews. This might have been one of the greatest, this particular verse 316 probably was the the greatest source of contention for this Pharisee he's talking to. As a pious Jew and member of the elite Pharisees, he, he had to be thinking there is no way that the God I know would love anyone other than us or anyone other than somebody like me who who gets everything right. Bare minimum, Nicodemus would say, no, no, on the contrary, God only loves His people. He only wants to save His people, the Jews, Israel. He, He only loves His people. He doesn't so love the world. Hold on a second. Have you seen what's out there, Jesus? Yes, I created it. And Jesus just catapults disaster upon this theology that he would have had here. Just, ania- just debunks this mindset and sets the record straight. God so loved the world that he gave the God-man, the full person of Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice, as a propitiation for our sin, That whoever, not just you, people from all over the globe, all over the world, that if they believe in Him, they will not perish. They will have eternal life. That's John 3.16. You see, we look at it all the time and we divorce it from the context and the person that's in conversation with Jesus. And we take it, look, He died for every single person and all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And it's all universal. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with Jesus absolutely tearing tearing down stereotypical thinking and terrible theology that the Jews have. You think it's all about you. You don't even know what being born again means. You've got it all wrong, Nicodemus. It is universal in a sense, but it's in the scope It's beyond Israel. Think of it like that. That's the provision. The provision is is, is really a combination of 14 and 16. It is the Son of Man and who's the same person, the Son of God. And you've got different little sections out there that call themselves Christian, that exalt the humanity and reduce the deity and all that, we got to believe, we got to have knowledge, conviction, and trust in the totality of who He is. Because anything less will not deliver. So that's the provision. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. And, And again, what is Nicodemus thinking? So you're telling me, again, it's not about what I do in all my works, in all my religion. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. You think that. You think it's about how good you are. You think it's about, it's about earning. You think about all the great things you've done and climbing the ladder in Judaism and becoming a member of the Sanhedrin and you've done all these things. Nicodemus would have believed that that's how you get to heaven. That's how you get into the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, you've got to be born again. You've got to believe in the God-man. You've got to believe in me. So you're telling me I'm wrong. Yeah. You're off. You're off. You're not beating him up. He's just telling it like it is. Jesus was filled with grace and truth, not just one or the other. Number three, the purpose. Okay, so you got the parallel, you got the provision, and now number three, you got the purpose, verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The purpose of God's provision in and through the God-man, Jesus Christ, is not condemnation, but salvation. Now, this truth should absolutely shape our attitudes and our message toward others, right? Right? Because Christians tend to focus on negativity and on condemnation and, well, this is going to happen to him and you're going to do this and if you don't do this, this is what's happening with you and all that. And, and boy, we, we like to heap out condemnation and we like to preach anathemas, curses over people all the time. Well, his theology is not quite like mine, so I don't think he's going to make it. We say all this stuff all the time. Or look how bad that guy is. We do this. We're very, we can be very, very judgmental. We can be very condemning. I know, this is why I got rid of Facebook. Not because of what people were doing to me, but because what I was beginning to do to people. Oh, they just beat me up all the time. No, I'm beating people up. And and so what if they're wrong? <laughs> it's not my job to pulverize them. I'm, I'm not saying I'm always right, but you know, when, when it comes to some things, and, and, I mean it doesn't lie. But it's not my job to condemn, 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 condemn. I don't consign people to heaven or hell. So when we look at this verse 17, it's very practical. He did not send the God-man. He did not send Jesus Christ into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This has got to shape our attitudes. It should shape our conversations. It is easy for Christians To engage in condemnation mode where we pile one condemnation after another upon the heads of those who reject or twist the truth, and quite frankly, sometimes that just disagree with our theology. We need to remember that we are called to preach the message of salvation, the gospel, not a message of condemnation. We are called to speak the truth in love, not spout anathemas and curses. When we come face-to-face with a person who contradicts the truth, whether they say they're a believer or not, and I find this with people who profess Christ all the time, when we come face-to-face with these people, and that's truly the way it should be handled. Facebook is not face-to-face, even though face is in the name. And Facebook, everyone pretends that they're much better than they are. It's very narcissistic. I like to promote a very po- positive image of myself there, not being realistic with myself. That's what happens. That's why it's not good. But when we come face to face with a person who contradicts the truth, we should, how do we respond to them? We should clear, clearly state what Scripture says. We should reason from Scripture. This is what the Apostle Paul did in Ephesus for three years. He reasoned from the Scripture with the Jews who were hard-headed and belligerent, and didn't want to listen, but he kept reasoning from the Scripture, and he was winsome. We should pray for the people or person, and we should entrust the outcome to God arguments are never won people are never won over on facebook whether it be for religion or politics it's you are spinning your wheels if you're trying to argue for you're spinning your wheels if you're trying to argue in favor of trump period or hillary you're not going to win anyone over you know what i just instantly became a republican called me an idiot, and that that was what changed my mindset. I realized because I was this, I was an idiot, and I don't want to be an idiot anymore. No, they return with a lot of expletives. Nobody's won over on Facebook. You're not going to win somebody to Christ on Facebook. You're not going to win somebody to your political party on Facebook. Facebook doesn't exist for that. It is the place of opinion and beating the snot out of people who disagree with you. So, not a good place to enter into any of this stuff. Keep putting up pictures of your pot roast. That's winsome. I see that, I'm like, that's a person after my own heart. Put up that picture of them tacos. Oh, he just preached a taco gospel to me. Don't put up something about politics. Just get out of there altogether. I've been trying to tell some of my friends in here. How do we respond? We give them scripture, we pray. We, we reason from scripture. We, we pray. We leave the results in God's hands. We should not enter the theological octagon and begin to pulverize people with verbal strikes and submissions. Right? I know this next Spurgeon quote will get them. Wah! And they're like, I caught a Spurgeon over in the Delta. They have no idea who Spurgeon is. That's a sturgeon. Now i got to tell him that. This guy's stupid. You're stupid. No. We need to do our best. Am I, is this resonating with anyone? Are there any other Facebook police in here? I was one, but I retired. Maybe it's face-to-face that you've done this. But look, look, we're not, this is about the gospel. It's not about winning arguments. We're justified by Christ. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone. This is something that i got to remember, and Facebook does not allow me to do that at times. Let me tell you where where it really counts. We need to get back to Christian kindness. At one time, Christians were so loving and kind and and would just overlook discrepancies and and differences and things and just try to believe the best and trust things to the Lord and would just flood people with kindness. I, I want to be known for that. And sadly, I don't think I'm known for that sometimes. What is it that that leads folks to repentance? The what of the Lord? The kindness. The kindness. For me, the the best application here is the purpose here and not having a message of condemnation and switching to a message of salvation, preaching Christ crucified and the eternal life that is in Him and in Him alone. And let me tell you something. That's awesome. That's what we need to tell people about. Amen? Fourth P. So now we understand, right, that He didn't send Jesus in to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. What does world there mean again? It means beyond Israel. It means people from every tribe and tongue. Does it mean the whole world, every Man, woman, and child, it can't because not everyone gets saved. It is specific to a group of people. We call them the elect, but I like to think of it as people from every tribe and tongue. That's certainly more palatable for me. It's people from every walk of life and every generation. The church is actually really big, and it's growing. God is saving people. God is giving people New birth and faith and all the things that we're talking about. He is doing it. He's saving them. We're living in the time of grace. We're living in the dispensation of grace. It's awesome. And we get to be a part of that and watch that. Not only do we get to be a part of it and watch it, we get to serve in it and proclaim the message that God uses to save. It's awesome. So let's stick to the message of salvation, not a message of condemnation. Let's leave that up to God. And then fourth, you've got the pronouncement. Fourth P, pronouncement, verse 18 Jesus says to Nicodemus, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The world has been in a state of condemnation since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. In fact, God himself cursed the ground, cursed creation. And this condemnation is twofold. People are spiritually condemned and separated from God. And the world is physically condemned, or as Genesis 3.17 puts it, cursed. The, the world that we live in is actually consigned to destruction. It's going to be destroyed and redone. I take issue with the eschatology out there that says we're just doing it all now and this is, it's going to be an improved version of this. No, this, this is all going away. It's all going to be gone. God cursed it. And once it's been cursed by Him, that's it. It's got, there's no hope for it. The planet's going away. He's going to redo it. So condemnation is twofold. There's a spiritual condemnation that's upon people and there's a physical condemnation upon creation. We really ushered in the, both the spiritual and the physical condemnation through sin, through rebellion against God, through our original parents. And we're the progeny of them and we're just as guilty as they are. Now the way out of this condemnation, and both parts of it, the way out of it, is through believing in God's provision, Jesus Christ. The pronouncement is simple. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the condemnation. If we do not believe in Him, we remain under the condemnation. And people will tell you that, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you'll go to hell. Guess what? They're already headed there. We're already condemned. Every person is headed in that direction. People don't go to hell just because they reject Jesus Christ. They're already headed there. The rejection is just a furtherance of their condemnation. But I would say that if you reject Jesus Christ, absolutely, you're going to remain in that condemnation and you're going to suffer for it for all eternity, and that's a lot longer than 70 years or however long you live. Jesus basically tells Nicodemus that he is condemned. And this, this just must have been unreal for a guy like him at his level and all the religion and everything. Why was he condemned? Because he did not believe the testimony of Jesus Christ. He did not believe in the testimony of the apostles, or as Paul Rogers said, the testimony of the Godhead, which is the God man. And he came, and we're looking at the testimony right here. He would not believe. He would not submit. He would not embrace what Jesus is saying. Therefore, he is condemned. He remains in that state of condemnation. Jesus put it in verse 11. He says, you do not accept our testimony. That basically means believe in me and what I'm telling you. What do you think was going through Nicodemus' mind? Pharisees were notoriously prideful, so it could have been, he could have been thinking, I'm a descendant of Abraham, I obey the commandments. This is where he pulls out his list of achievements, right? I'm a descendant from Abraham, I can trace it all the way back. I'll show you, Jesus. I obey the commandments, I adhere to the traditions, I am a Pharisee, I am a ruling member of the Sanhedrin. Surely, Jesus, you must be wrong. There is no way that God would condemn somebody like me. Nicodemus you reject me, you're condemned. Anyone who rejects me, whoever, uses the same phrase, beyond Israel, whoever does not believe, remains in the condemnation that is brought forth through sin. Jesus said a few more things to Nicodemus in verses 19 through 21. Lord willing, we'll take a look at those next week. In other words, he's not finished with Nicodemus. He's got to unpack Another component. I think we'll begin to wrap it up. Last week I told you the first sign of true conversion is a new birth. Right? Remember? A person is truly converted. They have experienced a new birth. They have been born again. They have been regenerated. They have become a new creation. And it's by the will and power of God that that has taken place. It's not what they have done. And I gave you the illustration of a baby being born. The baby didn't choose to be born. The baby didn't choose his parents. The baby was just born. It's the same thing with us. Our heavenly parent made that decision for us. Hallelujah. There's no way I could bring myself into it. Even as a believer, I'm still trying to run from him. So the first sign of true conversion, the very first sign is a new birth. The second sign of true conversion is a new faith. It's a new faith. person who has experienced a new birth, regeneration, will exercise faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He or she will believe in, accept wholeheartedly God's provision. Guaranteed. I love what John Murray said. He says, "...without regeneration, being born again, it is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Jesus Christ." First thing he says, if you haven't been born again, it's impossible. You'll never believe in Jesus. But he says this, "...but when a person is regenerated, born again... It is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. The person who has been born again will believe. They're not born again, then they choose whether to believe or not. They're born again, they're a new creation, they're a new person. They want to do it, they want to believe, and they embrace Jesus wholeheartedly. Oh, I finally found what I'm looking for. In fact, I didn't even know what I was looking for. I just knew I was empty. And something has happened that's beyond me. Without it, it's impossible. With it, it's impossible. You're going to believe, man. A, a baby that is born, a physical baby that is born, is going to live and breathe and grow. A person who is born again is going to live and breathe and grow, believe in the one who saved them. Again, what is belief? What is faith? What is a new faith? It is knowledge. It is conviction. It is trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's faith. So the person who's born again is going to have a knowledge of Christ, is going to have conviction, belief in him, and is going to have trust. I trust in him for my eternal security. And, of course, there's a progression. You grow in knowledge. You grow in conviction. You grow in trust. You know, not just like this at all times. Sometimes it's like this. But there is progression It's impossible for there not to be because you're a new creation and you have the Holy Spirit living in you. So my question to you is, and I asked it earlier, does your faith, does our faith have these three components? Is is it comprised of knowledge, conviction, and trust? The reason why I ask this question, first of all, I want you to test yourself, but the reason, the real reason why I ask is because it is possible to have a type of faith where one or two of those things is missing. I don't even know if you could call it faith. I don't know what else to call it. But there are versions, there are types of faith that exist. This is why I say, does your faith, is it represented by these three things? Because there are people who say they know Jesus but have no conviction, no belief. That's Nicodemus. Superficial faith. I I know who he is and I know what he can do. You reject our testimony. I know, but I know who you are. Okay, hold on a second. You know me. You know me, but you don't believe in me. That's a deficient faith. There are countless people who know Jesus but don't really believe. And they call themselves Christians and they march around doing all this stuff. That would be one example. There, there are people who say they have conviction, belief in Jesus, but they have no trust. This is the person that, who constantly doubts and questions their salvation. Pretty much worries about everything. Acts as if there's no God who's in control. You, you, can, you can be a person, you can have a kind of faith where you've got a little bit of knowledge of Jesus or whatever, but you've got belief. Oh yeah, I believe in him, but your life is a, a flaming train wreck because there's no trust. You don't believe, you don't really trust, you haven't put your trust in what he's done for you and accomplished for you. And so you go back and forth with every time you sin, well, I don't think I'm saved. Or maybe maybe it's not the little sins. Maybe it's a big one. Well, I did that. There's no way that a believer would do something like that. So I don't know. I got a kind of faith. I do believe. You see, belief, conviction without trust is, is not faith. There are, there are people who say they, they trust in Jesus, but they don't know him. I think this is the biggest group of all. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I trust in Him. Yeah, he's, he's my Savior. Tell me about Him. Well, I haven't met with Him for four years, so. You you married guy? Yeah. How often do you talk to your wife? All the time. Well, you know her because you interact with her. How can you say you know Him when you don't even, you don't even interact with Him? Well, I know Him. I, I trust Him. I'm trusting in Him. I'll give you an example. These are people who pray the prayer of salvation and they put their trust in Jesus and then go back to business as usual. There's no desire to know Jesus more, but somehow they're trusting in Him for salvation. I just want to say this as, as, as clearly as I can. Folks like this are not trusting in Jesus for salvation. They're trusting in the decision and prayer they made. Big difference. Big difference. Big difference. Why do I ask if your faith is is holistic, if it has knowledge, conviction, and trust? Because it's possible to have one without the other. And I'm here to tell you today that if if you have a, a kind of faith that doesn't have all three components, you don't have saving faith. Knowledge, conviction, and trust will be there. None of these other types, none of these other types, these lesser versions, actually spring forth from regeneration regeneration cannot produce superficial faith it's impossible regeneration always results in real faith and the litmus test that you have before you to make sure that you've been born again to make sure that you have real faith is to analyze your faith and if knowledge conviction and trust are there you're rocking and rolling It's not just knowledge, conviction, and trust. It is particular, it is specific. Those things are totally engraved and trenched in and and threaded into the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you've got the faith that's got knowledge, conviction, and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you've been born again. You've got real faith. I just say hallelujah if that's who you are. And guess what? Jesus has said it a couple times here in the text. You will see the kingdom of God. And I'll add to it, not only will you see it, you're actually in it. You're a kingdom person right now. And Jesus also said in verse 15 and 16, you have received eternal life. You've been born again, and you've got real faith, and real faith is knowledge, conviction, and trust. You must realize that the opposite is true if we reject Jesus' testimony, if we have some felonious version of faith, a deficient version, a subpar version, a non-biblical version, a superficial version. If you respond like Nicodemus, you haven't been born again. You don't have faith. The absence of real faith, a faith that has the three components, shows that we have not been born again. It shows that we have not been regenerated. And because of this, we will not see the kingdom of God, nor will we receive eternal life. We actually stand condemned. We are under the curse and condemnation of sin. What can you do? Can you make yourself regenerate? Can you regenerate yourself? No. Can you make yourself believe? Can you somehow just, okay, come on into me, knowledge, conviction, and trust, faith, give it to me. Woohoo! I got it. You can't make it happen. Jesus has been telling Nicodemus, it's the it's work of the Spirit. In fact, the Bible talks about repentance and faith being gifts from God. They're, they're gifts that come right alongside or right out of regeneration. Even those things are provided. This is how pathetic we are. We can't make ourselves live we can't make ourselves believe if God doesn't intervene and do something for us we're done you can't regenerate yourself you can't make yourself believe but like I said last Sunday if you're an unbeliever you know that you don't have these things but you find yourself suddenly longing for them it sounds like the Holy Spirit's already working in your heart it sounds like he's working in your life because the dead man doesn't care about these things The dead sinner, the one who's under condemnation, cares less about them. They're like, well, this guy's just wasting my time. But if inside of you you're saying, man, that's that's what I want. I want to make sure I have all of that and a bag of chips. I want to have eternal life. I want the kingdom. I want to know God. I want to be a different person. Something's already happening in you. Your true sinful nature is being shattered and replaced by a new nature. You're becoming a new creation. That's awesome. If I've described to you, I say keep asking God for mercy because it's pure mercy that you're getting it. Keep asking God to reveal Himself to you because that's what He's doing ultimately. What is salvation? Eternal life is to know God and to know His Son, to know the Godhead. He's revealing Himself to you in a way that's never happened before. Run with it. Embrace it. Say, give it to me, God. Give me mercy. Keep asking for it. Begging for it. Plead with Him. He don't turn away people that do that. It's awesome. I don't know what side you fall on if you're like Nicodemus or, or the opposite of that. Ponder these things. Consider them. I say if you're a believer already, you know you've been born again and you've got the real deal faith and all that. And I would just tell you right now, we ought to be rejoicing like crazy for what God has done for us. It's, it's just incredible what he's done for us. It's, it's a miracle. You're saying, well, I can't get my mind around it. You're not supposed to. You can understand it a little bit, but miracles are things that beyond human reasoning. It is a miracle of God's grace. So we rejoice, right? Amen.